But it's fun that Pastor Dan actually started talking about the idea of um, just the set freeness of where we are, because we're going to talk about that a little bit today as we look at and continue in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Before I jump into Hebrews, though, hey, take some time during the day to fill out the Connect card. Um, whether you're first time here or you've been here a while, because one of the ways that we really get to know who you are, what's going on in your life, and how we can best pray for you is the Connect card. And so we'll try to expand that in different ways, but for now, that's the best way I can actually know what's going on in your life and know how to pray. So hey, as we go through this series, we've been having a lot of fun with this idea of the book of Hebrews. Um, if you've joined us for the first time, the first week we talked about an introduction to this book. And as we introduced the book of Hebrews, we talked about the concept that Jesus is greater than that. That's all throughout this book. You're going to see that as we study it. The second week that we looked at this book, we talked about that idea again, greater than. The second week, or third week, and this gets confusing, so which one is intro, first, and second, okay? But the second week, technically, we talked about how he's greater than the law, specifically, and our traditions. So this week, I want to introduce the concept of identity to you, and also talk about it through our culture, because it is a hot word, is it not? Identity. How you identify, where you identify, what you identify. And so uh, to kind of have fun with this, since it's such a heavy topic, I want to start with coffee identity. Can we do that? So um, we have coffee every week here. And so I've got some pods, and I'm just kind of curious who identifies most with each of the pods. Just for fun, I have the Nantucket blend. These are all in the pullout, okay? I've got some hands already, okay? I have the dark roast, okay, all right, okay? And then I've got... Maxwell House, traditional. Okay, so I just want to have some fun. Jake, Maxwell House, okay. Who wants the dark one? I, I saw you first. I don't know if I can, all right, duck. Yeah, not bad. Okay, a little off, okay, curve. And then who wants Nantucket? Anybody want Nantucket? I'm trying to go for the, okay, I'm sorry if I hit you. Okay, I didn't hit anybody, that was good. So you can see just from something as simple as that, we identify in different ways. But I think that one of the things that's been confusing for me as I thought about this message and how it connects to Scripture is just a few decades ago, if you were to try to identify someone, they would almost be perturbed with you, would they not? They would say, don't box me in. Don't box me in either based on gender or race or um, my political party. And so it's interesting to me that in just a decade later, we're starting now to people are all into how they identify. And if you don't identify them properly based on certain cultural components, they can get pretty angry with you. Uh, Jake and I were talking for the service and we were lamenting on the fact that sometimes uh, we'll have people that if they give you a specific identity, that now you're supposed to know everything about them, which is completely wrong because it only tells you one thing about them. And what's so beautiful about this is I think it's very relevant not only to the cultural problem we have, but also the Christian problem in identity that we have. In fact, some people, even within this church and other churches we've been a part of, they will identify in a unique way. My grandfather, um, Pop-Up Davis, he would not identify as a Christian. In fact, if you called him a Christian, he would get upset. This is from my father, he told me this. He was a Methodist. And so if you called him a Christian, that was offensive to him. He was a Methodist. That's where he was. We had some people that have attended here at times that have said, well, we're Baptists. And then when I say, well, really, we're Christians who currently practice our faith in a Baptist church, that's really more a core to our identity is just being Christian. They would get upset that somehow I wouldn't adopt 
um, the term Baptist. Even when we were going door to door in Mardella for the new church plant, we had people that were trying to kind of bear us down at times on identity. Well, what's your denomination and what's your background? And what you, instead of just understanding that really what it means to identify with Christ is just to be a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. And so there's a tension here that I think is something that this passage is going to speak to. And Christian identity is absolutely unique. It's unique. And one of the ways that it's unique as we get ready to come into this is you have to look to Christ, obviously, to get identity. And you need to go back to kind of the beginning. That God was in heaven and that he and Christ and the Spirit had perfect fellowship. If you're not familiar with this doctrine, it's called the Trinity. Okay, Very difficult to explain. I won't, take, I won't break this down too much this morning. But what's interesting about this is Christ made a decision to leave heaven so that people could better identify with the heart of who God is. In fact, the scriptures are so clear all over the place that when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. He's God in the flesh. It's a core aspect of Christian identity and Christian understanding. And so when this author who wrote Hebrews is writing to this Jewish audience, he wants them to get it. He knows that they have specific identity as people who are Jewish, and he's about to rub them wrong. He's about to stir the pot. He's about to challenge their concept of Christian identity. And it's possible, quite possible for those watching right now online and those that are here, by the end of this message, just possibly, he may rub you too. Because as I look to the person of Jesus, there's times that I discover what I've been taught and what traditions I've grown up in aren't necessarily what's actually in Scripture and when I look to the person of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, open it to Hebrews 2. We're going to be looking at just 14 all the way through the first part of chapter 3. It'll be in your notes as well as on the screen. A couple different ways you can access it. But listen to what the author says again to this early gathering of Christians. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, all of us got flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. This is talking about Christ. That is the devil. So the first part's talking about Jesus. Now he's talking about the one who owns death at that point, and that's Satan. And free those who were all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of all people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, his brethren there, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Yeah. The apostle and high priest whom we confess. So if some of these terms are strange to you, again, understand that the author is writing to a primarily Jewish audience that was an early gathering of people who were Christ followers. 
And so there's some things we're going to draw from this, but keep that in mind because that's going to help you understand what the author was trying to say to the original people. And here's the first thing I think you can pull from this. True greatness requires humility. True greatness always requires humility. It's the first part of 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So to understand why that is an act of humility, you have to first understand who Jesus is. So Jesus in every way, all throughout scriptures, all through different pieces, is identified as God. He's identified as God. In the book of John, it says that in the beginning was the, and the word was, and the word, and then he identifies the word as Jesus. He says that he came and made his dwelling among us, okay? So there's this concept that he is God, which means, those of you that love reading the scripture and you geek out a little bit on it, there's a moment before Jesus comes in the flesh that he precedes the flesh. He's in heaven. And there's times, and actually in the Old Testament, it's pretty cool, where he comes down, he hangs out, and he manifests in different ways. In fact, the woman at the well, a lot of you love that story out of the Gospel of John. Those of you that have read that, that's not the first time Jesus meets with a woman at the well. There's a time in the Old Testament. I'll let you figure that out, those of you that love reading Scripture. But why this is important is, here he is God in every way, every attribute of God, and he sets it all aside to come and be in the flesh. So he sets aside everything that's owed to him that he might come and that we might not only identify with truly who God is, but that we might understand that God truly wants to identify with who we are and what our struggles are. And that's key. I was talking to a guy recently. We were hanging out. Uh, Kevin and I were hanging out with a friend, and he was struggling. He says, I just can't um, understand this whole thing, the virginal birth. This guy's been a Christian a long time, but he, had, he still struggles with the idea of the virgin birth. And it's because he doesn't understand this concept that precedes it. You see, for God to come in the flesh, he couldn't just be born like any other person. Yes, he was born of a woman, but born of the Spirit. He's the one through, I love that passage, if you've ever read that, it says the Holy Spirit was what? Hovering over Mary. And there's this moment that we know is this amazing moment where Christ then becomes flesh. It's a mystery of the faith, to be blunt, but it's critical in understanding the virginal birth was necessary so that Jesus would be born without sin. That's right. And so in that, think about what he put aside. Think about the things he gave up. While he was on earth, he set aside everything that was owed to him as God. God deserves our worship, doesn't he? He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. And yet Jesus sets these things aside for the purpose of not only dying for your sin, but that you might truly know and for God to truly know you. And that is so unique. I love it. Um, in this book, you're going to see it a couple different places. It'll say that he was made just a little lower than the angels. Yeah. And what it means by that is, in becoming one of us, he became so low. Can you imagine being the creator of the universe? Can you imagine that by your word, you spoke everything into being that is, and then now all the things which you spoke into being are pushing back on you with hatred and denial of who you truly are. That's humble. I mean, you and I get mad when a cop pulls us over for a ticket, and we're right, right? And we're willing to argue, right? We'll go to court for this. And Jesus is the guy who has set aside even his 
rights to divinity at that point. And that will change you. And then you're going to see in this text, in this context, that he not only is doing that with humility, but he's asking you, if you truly want to identify as a Christian, to walk and talk and act like him. One of the things that amazes me is when I get to hang out with people doing missions work, um, a lot of you know that we go out to Mr. Williams' home once a month. It's one of the places we've been going pretty consistent on the third Saturday of um, each month. And we go out there to a guy who has nothing and was flooded out of his home for the purpose of just loving on the guy and trying to get him back in his home. One of the reasons I do that is not because I have extra time and just want to hang out. I don't know if you figured that out. Some people think pastors only work on Sunday. If you're one of those, I have a different cup of coffee for you, okay, to help you. But it's pretty busy being in ministry for those of you that have done it. And you still have all the, all the dimensions that all of you have, of a family and you know, just all the pieces you're trying to take care of. And so how do you then find the time to set aside to go and do disaster relief work at a place like that? And here I'm going to tell you the secret how. It's simple, and yet it's so challenging. You want to actually walk and live the life of Christ. I'm going to set aside my weekend and the thing I want to do so I can spend time loving on this guy the way Jesus would. I'm going to set aside even things that I think are owed to me as a dad or a husband or a child or as a retired person so that I can invest in this person's life. That's what this idea of humility looks like. Humility has this idea of setting aside the things you think are yours for the sake of other people so they might be drawn closer to the person of Jesus. So that's the first thing that's here, and it's a challenging thing for us in the culture in which we live. The second thing you see is faith conquers the fear that many times is connected to this movement. Faith is what conquers fear. He says, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Death is one of those things that kind of paralyzes people one way or the other. I think both spiritual death as well as physical death. Of course, I think physical death is specifically with the author sitting here pretty hard. And he's talking about the physical death that Jesus would actually go through, but that he would come through that and show us that there's a better way with resurrection. In fact, it can paralyze people. I don't know if you've been there. Death can paralyze people. They don't know what to do with it. It just locks them up. But there's also a fear, I think, that's connected to here that's a prevenient fear. It's a fear that many times keeps you from coming to the next moment of faith. I don't know if you've seen that, which is why faith is so necessary to conquer the fear. And it's the fear that and everybody goes through this at different points in their faith. They say, if I take this next step in my faith, whether it's to be a follower of Christ or to be more committed to Jesus or to accept this office for Jesus or to set in this area of service for Jesus, I'm going to have to give up something. In other words, you will have to die in some way, in some form. And when that happens, you're going through the whole thing, just like someone who's going to go through the death of grief, and you're going, gosh, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to actually even walk through that situation. In fact, what's in the heart of that is you're going to ask this question, and we see this even among our leaders today in our church, where they say, what am I going to Lose. Let me, let me give you a phrase I've heard, not to call the person out, but I've heard that's very common as we get ready to plan a church. People say, well, who are we going to lose? That is steeped in a fear of death. 
I don't want to get back to where we were one day. We were only down to 20 or 30 folks. I don't want our church to die again. And what we do is we cling so tight to certain things that we can't see the new thing of resurrection that God's about to do. And it's faith that always conquers that fear. It's what is God about to do that I need to be a part of and what do I need to let go of so that God can move in a bigger way in my life and the life of people around me. And you may not like the answer, but I'm telling you, when you get there and you respond by faith, it's such a glorious adventure. It's so much fun. It's not easy, but it's a blast. There's also the literal areas of death that I think we struggle with and today we struggle with. People who have cancer or dementia or Alzheimer's or they they have this Fear that one day we'll be separated from the people that we love, right? Christ has conquered this. He's pulled the teeth out of Satan's jaws. I don't know if you get this. Even if you die, Christian brothers and sisters, what's the scripture say? You will live. The people that we know and love that die in the faith are with Christ, which means one day we will see them again. If by faith... You believe that. It doesn't mean you won't grieve. It doesn't mean you won't have the hurt. But it means you will grieve in such a different way, and it conquers your fear. I never forgot one of my Bible teachers, a guy that really impacted my life. Um, he was um, supposed to speak one year at a men's retreat, and he couldn't do it because he'd had a heart attack, massive heart attack, one of those widow-maker heart attacks. And he said when he started having the heart attack, he didn't realize what was going on. He just knew it wasn't good, right? And he hits the ground. And then he realizes, oh, this is a heart attack. This is what a heart attack feels like. It's his first experience with a heart attack, right? And he said his first thought, I don't know if I'm this spiritual. We'll find out one day when I have a coronary. Um, He said when he hit the ground, he said, oh, I might see Jesus today. Now that is a faith that is completely conquered over whatever the fear will be. And then he had a weird thought because he's like me, he reads history. He says, I remember one of the founding fathers had one of these and reached over during a session of Congress and said, I think I'm having a myocardial infarction. Who would ever say that? I don't know. I think most of us would say, I'm having a heart attack. Help. Get the defib. Strap it on. Juice me up, you know. But faith conquers those kinds of fears. And not just fears about physical death, but death to self. I love this in, in the 15. It says, and freely, and free those, sorry, who are, their, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. In other words, there's this, this is the missional part if we miss it. For surely it's not angels he helps, but it's Abraham's descendants. How many of you know that Abraham in the Bible is known as the father of faith? Yeah, specifically of the faith. Yeah, he's referred to all the time as the father of the faith. The seed of Abraham is the seed of faith. Another form of that fear, again, is stepping out, stepping into leadership, stepping into comfort. Um, Saturday, I went out with a team to go door-to-door in Mardella, okay? And it's funny hanging out with the team. So we get there, we're hanging out. Some of you are praying for us. Thank you, okay? And the prevailing thing was, I've never done this before. (laughs) What's it going to be like? So there was a bit of, if we're going to be honest, there's a bit of, fear, right? But people were propelled by faith because they want to see that community changed. And so they started walking around. And one of the things they were so surprised by church family, and you got to hear this, is how many people, when we went to their door, said, this community desperately needs a church, a healthy church, a vibrant church, 
a church that's engaged with the people that live here. We heard it over and over and over again. And their perspective was, just so you know, we didn't have to point out to any other church. We weren't trying to point out other churches. We were just asking questions. What can we do to serve this community like we serve this community in Seaford? And over and over again, they said, we know the two churches that are in town are dead. And there's a fear connected to it. But with that, I'm telling you, God wants to birth life. And when you're willing to go where no one else is willing to go and do things that no one else is willing to do because Christ says so, you will have an amazing adventure. The third thing I think that's in this text for us is this. Our high priest shows up and understands. Our high priest shows up and he understands. 70 says, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, okay, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. To really understand this, again, you've got to have a little bit of a Jewish understanding, high priest. The high priest was an interesting role among Judaism. Okay? If you were a Jew, the high priest was literally the high priest. There's only one of them. There's lots of priests. There's lots of Levites. There's lots of different people that had different roles at the temple. But there's only one high priest. And what's interesting when you look at this passage is that high priest obviously was not very accessible. He was very distant from the people. He wasn't around. He was always doing the higher stuff. In fact, one of the things that he did we'll talk about in a second, was he only went into the temple on the day of atonement to atone for the people's sins. But people didn't get to hang out with the high priest. He was too high and mighty. But Jesus yet, who's now called this high priest, is accessible and real and authentic and available to every single person. And it had to be messing them up because that's not what the high priest does. He's not that accessible. When I was studying government early on, not to bring government into it, but just the study of government, one of the guys that totally floored me, I really liked reading his stuff, was a guy named Thomas Jefferson. You may be familiar. You can go visit his place in Virginia. Um, But Jefferson had an interesting idea about government, and I don't know if you've read all about it, but Jefferson was the one that pushed for small government. Did you know that? He was the big guy that said, we need a smaller government. But you know why he pushed for it. Here's his why. I love the why. Always look for the why. He said, when you have to look at people, look at them, and live with them, and share your life with them, when you go to govern for them, you govern differently. That was at his heart. He's like, but if you get like several layers removed, and you just got this whole group of people that all you do is you're professional politicians, and you're not connected to the actual people... That's going to cause an issue. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I mean, I just, I'm just, Jefferson, this is where he was at the founding of the nation, which is why he believed that the empowerment should be close and local. I think he derived this, whether he realized it or not, from a biblical understanding of the person of Jesus and how accessible he is compared to every other faith around him. 18 says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, it even goes further. He's able to help those who are being tempted. So for those of you that you struggle with something right now, uh, some, some date that's coming up, um, baptism, maybe, maybe being your next step of faith, making Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, someone in your family who's going through a health crisis, a chaotic situation relationally in your family, You need to go to Jesus on this and understand that every way that you suffer, every way that you're tempted, 
Everything that you walk through, he went through it too. That's such a beautiful dynamic and dimension of the person of Christ that is so unique to the Christian faith. Does Jesus know what it's like to grieve? He does. Does Jesus know what it's like to have a dysfunctional family? Yes. Does Jesus know what it's like to have a government who doesn't have the best interests of the people? Does Jesus know what it's like for the people to try to put him in the middle of solving the government problem? I mean, there's not one thing you can come up with that you can't look to the person of Jesus and say, he knows it, he gets it. Jesus has went through every emotion that you could think of, every struggle that you've had. And because of that, when you come to him and you pray, he can say, I get it. I understand. And I can show you how to overcome. Isn't it interesting in certain faiths that you'll go to someone to get marital advice who's never been married? I won't point out that faith system, but that's kind of goofy, isn't it? Tell me about marriage. You've never been married and had no kids. Bad idea, right? I remember we had a guy that was here one time, and there were two of us. Uh, we, had, we always try to cultivate multiple pastors as a part of our church. And we had a combat vet who had come back, and he was struggling with PTSD. And I'm a veteran, but I didn't actually serve in a combat zone. A couple different hairy situations, but didn't. I got my deployment got pulled before we were supposed to go to the Gulf. But we did have a, a pastor here at the time who had actually was a combat vet. And in working with this guy who had PTSD, I said, who would you rather meet with? Who do you think he would rather meet with? The combat vet. Because he can empathize and understand the emotional struggles. This is why... You're going to see over and over in this book, it's very powerful. We're going to get to it in a second. This author, I don't know if you noticed, does not use Jesus' title very often. He uses his name, Jesus. And a repeated phrase you're going to see as you go through this as a reading plan is, but we see Jesus. This author wanted you to connect to him, relate to him, and to know him intimately like you know one another. How does that, how does that happen? Well, it happens first when you admit, and we talk about this often, it's so important as a church. It happens first when you admit you're a sinner. That you, like every single one of us, are separated from God because of your sin. And let me, let me tell you, that sin doesn't just separate you from God. It separates us from one another, right? That that separation is real. Do you know that's the biblical concept of death, by the way? Separation. And then we start to admit that and get real with who we are and what we're going through and what our struggles are, how we've treated God, how we've treated other people. Then we're really to look to the person of Christ and say, he not only understands me, he not only relates to me, but he went through everything that I went through and yet was without sin, which meant he was the perfect person then to pay for all the sins of the world, which is what he did, right? When he died on that cross, he died for your sin and for my sin. And because he did that, we have this great high priest who gets us and understands us and loves us. The fourth thing that you're going to see then is that kind of reality begins to shape and focus everything. Our focus shapes our calling because our focus begins to go around the person of who Jesus is. I love this in, in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, holy brothers, who share in this heavenly calling, that's Jesus coming, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And if you've got a Bible out or an app, underline these two words. The apostle, boom, and high priest whom we confessed. You see, as the high priest, you got to understand what the high priest did to understand what Jesus is doing for you right now. 
Once a year, the high priest would go into the holiest place inside the temple. It's the only place the high priest could go. And they would slaughter a bull for the forgiveness of the sins of all of Israel. And the high priest would go to the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if you know this. And he would take the blood and he would sprinkle the blood over what was known as the mercy seat, the lid of the covenant. And you may not know this, but it's so cool how God put all this together. There's two angels that look toward one another. And where they look at that place, at that lid, was known as the mercy seat of God. Without even knowing it, the highest priest did this for thousands of years until Jesus ultimately did it for everyone. And now he intercedes for you and I every day, wanting you to come to the kind of faith that conquers death and conquers the craziness of the life in which we live. But the question is, will you have the boldness to lay down your life? Will you be able to conquer that fear? The older I get, the more I begin to see how simple this is and how hard it is at the same time. You know what? It's not hard to understand. But gosh, it's simple sometimes to let go of the things that I love so much. I love that if you're doing the reading plan with us, you will begin to see this book is really all about Jesus. In Hebrews 2, 8 through 9, which is part of the reading plan this week, it said this, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Here it is in verse 9. Here's that phrase you're going to see repeated. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's your great high priest. And the good news is he did all of that for you and I. And what he's waiting on is for us to commit our life to him, to live for him in every way, to make him Lord and Savior of our life. And when we do that, you begin to understand the death that you will experience comes with a beautiful resurrection with Christ. But the person that rises will not be the same person that knelt. That's a biblical transformation. That's what Billy Graham used to call being born again, born from above. That's what John says. So my question to you is, Is that where you are? Do you have that kind of faith? The kind of faith that if I said tomorrow, hey, the spirit of God is moving, we're heading to this place to help this person because they need the love of Jesus, that you would say, I'll rearrange whatever I need to do. The mission of Christ is paramount. What he's asking us to do and be is more important than my comfort, my money, and all the stuff I own. Is that the kind of person you are? Because if you're not, then you're like me, and there's another area for you to surrender. And today's the day that God wants you to surrender.